blood we come. Sing by your blood we
We ask that uh, you remain standing uh, in honor of God and honor of his word, uh, the inherent, inspired, inherent, infallible, authoritative, perfect, eternal word, and the one that is adequate to meet and speak to each one of us today. And uh, Pastor Mike today is speaking from Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, and I'm going to read those, and uh, if you could read along if you'd like. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in the unrighteousness. You may be seated. This morning, uh, we're going to be remembering um, a couple who served the Lord um, and were a part of their, their ministry and their lives, and that's uh, Steve and Mayan Cad. Uh, they served with Sword Productions. Uh, they're filmmakers uh, producing movies with culturally relevant values. Uh, in the Middle East these days. Uh, they've produced movies in all kinds of places of our world, but in the present day, they're in the Middle East, and they're having a significant influence where they're located, and uh, we're going to be praying for them today. And I uh, ask that you would join with me. Our Father, uh, you've heard our song. We've heard your song, the one David wrote. And... Uh, we know, Lord, that uh, you're present with us and you are the God who made all that is. You're the one who knit us together in our, our mother's womb. Uh, you know us all by name and, and uh, you think on us and you pursue us and you call us to yourself. There isn't anyone on the face of this globe who doesn't stand before you, the one who is the only creator, God, the one who has rule over everything in life. Lord, I'm grateful that uh, you think on us and you come to us and you're present with us today. 
Lord, let us, let us never forget in the living of our day that uh, you are and that you're here. Didn't take but a few moments scanning on the front page of the paper, Lord, today to see how upside down our world is. There's all kinds of reason to be anxious and upset and concerned. And, but aside from the fact we know that you are and that you rule and history is in your hands, Lord, in you we rest, and in you we find our confidence, and we're grateful. We also come, Lord, with uh, knowledge of ourselves. We know what we've said this week. We know what we've done. We know what we've not done. You know the things in our life that we bear shame for. You know the things that have been resentment and bitterness and doubt and fear and things that have no need in our life. And yet we embrace those, and, and uh, Lord, for that, uh, we confess them to you and grateful for your forgiveness and grateful that you're embraced and grateful that uh, Jesus understands our weaknesses and he was tempted in every way that we are and that uh, you invite us to boldly come in front of you because you know us and love us. And uh, we're just grateful for that invitation today. Lord, there are a lot of needs that uh, are in our lives and you know them. And I know that uh, you ask us to trust you, to walk with you, to take initiative, but to do it in you, in trusting you, and that you provide for us in all things. Help us to rest in that confidence and to act out of that confidence, Lord. And I think, too, Lord, of uh, those in the past who have offered their life and sacrifice, that uh, we might enjoy the freedoms of gathering here that we do today. Lord, that service is not unnoticed by you or, or by us today, and we thank you. We thank you for those of our number who were present with you today, and we feel the loss of their presence, but uh, we know they're with you, and that that's the hope that's ours as well. Lord, there's a day when we will be face-to-face. -face. But for now, we're grateful, Lord, for your presence here. So teach us today. We're here to learn from you. And we come and offer in our lives. And we do in the name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.
required to go, to go into all the world and to share the good news of Christ, the Savior. God, this week has been particularly sobering and a reminder of, God, how short life is. And also, God, of the depths of wickedness in the heart of man. And there's not one thing that we need more than you, Jesus. So, God, would we go out of this place renewed by your spirit and strengthened by your word. God, and would we take the gospel to every place that you bring us. We ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in your Bibles, picture, if you will, a giant dam holding back tons of water. And now picture the water in the dam. It's poison. It's more dangerous than the Ganges River in India where the remains of 40,000 dead bodies float, uh, cremated or not, and Medicine-resistant bacteria, super bacteria live in it. This poisonous water is in this dam. Yet this water is different. It is clear. And some can and some cannot see how bad it is. Some smell a stench. Some think it is sweet. And now picture a, a little bit of water getting let out every day. It looks clean. Many drink it. Yet it makes them sick. But they think they are well. They've been told the water is good. It'll help you. 
looks good to the eyes, good to the taste, but it's poison. Now picture people guzzling it, gulping it down by the gallons without a care, and people who know it's poisonous warning them. Now picture the people gulping the water, getting angry at the people warning them and calling them hateful fools. Picture the hysteria that breaks out against those warning those in danger. Now picture the concerned warners honestly telling deluded people that one day it will get worse. The dam will break and they will need to run for cover. And now picture the abuse that gets hurled at the people warning them. Dam is held back by the strongest power, but at a certain moment it will be let go and wash over humanity and destroy Yet those in danger don't want to hear that. And by the way, if you think current evil is bad, future evil will be worse. This is a little picture of, a little illustration of that. Jesus said in Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. And because of lawlessness being increased, the love of many will grow cold. If you're a Christian today, if you navigate this world, you are preparing for the next world. And it will be ushered in by a heightening of evil, the likes of which we have never seen or imagined. Though at times, we think this is as bad as it could ever be. We added Uvalde, Texas to our vocabulary this week. We become far too familiar with places associated with, with tragedy that we otherwise may never have known their, the name. But the list has grown very long indeed, and we witness horrendous, high-handed evil. And yet, as a people, we are very selective as to what constitutes evil. Example, everyone agrees. No one denies that killing children outside the womb is evil. And yet, for many people, killing children inside the womb is considered by many a good, even courageous choice. Carl Truman, in his new book, Strange New World, says, For many people, the Western world has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious, unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism and even seen by many as more akin to vices. Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday 
that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. He goes on, nor are the problems confined to the world out there. Often they manifest themselves most acutely and painfully within families. Parents teaching their family traditional views of sex are met by their children who have absorbed far different views from the culture around them. And it's as true within the church as within wider society, reflected in attitudes and beliefs about some of the most basic aspects of human existence. And the result is often confusion and heartbreak as many of the most brutal engagements in the culture war are played out around the dinner table and at family gatherings. And then he says, welcome to this strange new world. It is where you live, and it is important that you try to understand it. Think with me. In light of the horrendous, heinous, harmful, even hidden evil in the world today, it is difficult for us to imagine things getting worse. The Bible tells us it surely will. That evil and sin currently abounding will hyper-increase in both volume and velocity as the day of the Lord draws near. And there will come a day when evil will reach its muddiest, lowest, worst with the Antichrist. And what 2 Thessalonians does in brief is provides a very succinct timeline of events associated with the Lord's return so that Christians would not lose heart or be deceived. Today we will see what will take place prior to Christ's return in terms of pure evil. We're going to look at several verses in 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll look at verses 3 to 6. And we'll see the man of lawlessness. People were telling believers in that day, you missed Christ's return. They were attempting to deceive them with falsehood, throw them off point, and Paul told them they would miss the day of the Lord's judgment. But they got confused. And they were thinking somehow they were in the day of the Lord and his judgment, and the Holy Spirit wanted the church then as now to know the truth and be comforted. God wants you to know the truth and be comforted today. So with regard to the return of Christ, what we see in this passage, first we saw the request, we saw it last week, a request. And then a rebellion that's present and increasing, and then a revealing in the future, and then a restraining that is going on. You see the rebellion in verse 3, the revealing in verses 3 and 4, and then a restraining in verses 5 and 6. And we should be very, very thankful about that restraining. Last week we saw the request, and, and verse 1 said very clearly what this is all about, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's what this is about. We ask you, brethren, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come clear as crystal. Paul's request comes with a restriction. Verse 3, let no one 
deceive you in any way. There were people maliciously troubling the Thessalonian Christians and, and anyone who would listen, and Paul says, don't be taken in in any way. That if they've been deceived into thinking that the Bible does not mean what it says, or if you've been deceived into thinking that the Bible doesn't mean what it says, that you recover by resisting fear and rejecting lies. Repent of false ideas. What Paul is determined to do here is to prove that they had not missed the rapture. They were not in the day of the Lord's judgment. And the two clear indicators of the day's presence had not happened yet. The rebellion and the revealing. That first must come the rebellion. Verse 3, he says quite clearly, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The rebellion, the defiance yet to come. And, and you think, well, well, we're living in greatly defiant days now. Yes, we are. And it's going to get worse. The day will not come. The day is not present yet. Until the rebellion comes, the defiance, literally the falling away, it was used to refer to military or political or religious rebellion. And the context points to religious defection. The language indicates it's a specific event that's going to happen. Not a general apostasy, which exists now and always will, but an event that is clearly identifiable, specifically identifiable, uniquely identifiable. It will be the consummate act of rebellion an event of final magnitude, there will be the, the final apostasy, the rebellion, a deliberate abandonment of professed truth. The day of the Lord cannot occur until the deliberate abandonment of truth occurs at an ultimate level. A similar defection of professing Christians is elsewhere anticipated. You see it in Matthew 24. You see it in 1 Timothy. You see it in 2 Timothy, 2 Peter. You see it in Jude. All of these things were People that are, are, are evil, people that are imposters, they'll proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to keep happening. But what this is speaking of is a worldwide anti-God movement that is so university, uh, universal, it will earn itself a, a specific designation, a special designation, the rebellion. It'll be this zenith of ever increasing apostasies before the rapture of the church. But there will be a falling away before the day of the Lord. It's the abomination of desolation that takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. It's spoken of in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24. And, and the presence of the apostasy, the presence of the counterfeit God will, will be observed worldwide. It will be internationally observed. And this not happening yet proves Paul's thesis that the day of the Lord hasn't yet happened. That after the catching away of those in Christ, it was spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, all who are truly in him will be gone. And then in that moment, conditions will be, will be more ripe for people to turn their backs on God and blaspheme him. But it must come first, the rebellion, and then the revealing. Verses 3 and 4, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. That following the religious apostasy will come the unveiling of a murky figure that masterminds everything in opposition to God. His whereabouts before this time are not given, but he's alive and well for years before the unveiling, and his dramatic public presentation will occur after the rebellion begins. And 
for a very long time, people have been trying to guess the identity of the lawless one. Some have said it, it was Judas Iscariot, or Antiochus Epiphanes, or Nero, or Diocletian, or many have said it was the popes of Rome. And after the fall of Rome in A.D. 410, popes took power and claimed the right to govern in, in Europe, and they exalted themselves. They exercised authority over nations, the popes wearing the three-tiered tiara, claiming to rule in earth and heaven and hell. Many, including John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and John Calvin, thought that the man of sin was the Pope of Rome. But other Christians, including myself, expect a future Antichrist to arise. That the man of lawlessness will be a new historical figure whom Satan will energize to do his will in the world. Think with me for a moment of the kind of terms we're using here. The man of lawlessness. When, when you, it's a Hebrew idiom, man of. Think about man of God. Man of God in the Old Testament refers to the prophet of God who spoke forth from God. Well, the man of lawlessness designates a false prophet, likely to identify with the second beast of Revelation 13. He's going to be presiding over apostasy, he'll be cooperating with the beast out of the sea, and will lead an opposition against God. He will be God's opponent of Daniel 11. He will give leadership to and dominate the nations. He's called the man of lawlessness, but he's also called the son of destruction. And he opposes, literally he opposes, he lies against, he, he constantly opposes as a habitual life and exalts himself. Literally, he puts himself up in a place that isn't his, that he, above measure, lifts himself up as an object of worship, as something to be reverenced. And he does this against every so-called God or object of worship, so he, he takes his seat in the temple of God, in the sanctuary, in the innermost part, and he proclaims himself to be God. He will show off. He will exhibit himself. He will display himself as God, he will literally nominate himself as God and proclaim that he is. He's characterized three ways in these verses. First, as the man of lawlessness. Epitomizes an opposition to the laws of God. He's against God's truth. That Satan will so indwell and operate through him that his main delight will be in breaking God's righteous laws. Paul calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, as 1 John 3, 4 tells us. It's interchangeable. He is the one called the prince who is to come in Daniel 9, the little horn of Daniel 7. John calls him the beast in Revelation 13. He's, most of us know him by the, the term the Antichrist. The context in the language refers to a real person in the future who does things prophesied in Scripture, the man of lawlessness. He's also called the man of destruction, the son of destruction, literally the man doomed to destruction, literally the son of perdition, the son of perdition. It, again, son of, in Hebrew, indicates a, a character, a destiny of a person. He's the son of perdition. He belongs to a class that is destined for destruction. So the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, is the son of destruction, and that defines the Antichrist. 
lawlessness and sin. It speaks of his apostasy. He's going to abandon truth. But also destruction speaks of his destiny. He will be destroyed. Verse 8 tells us that the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Son of perdition was used to describe Judas Iscariot. Seemingly loyal before his falling away into error and betrayal. And the Antichrist, if you will, will be the final Judas. Doesn't identify Judas as this latter son of perdition. The man is not Satan. Satan is the force behind him. Verse 9 tells us that. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. He has motives like the devil. Third, he opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. He has a determined opposition to the true God, a leading figure of, of continuing apostasy. And some see this when it says that he will set himself up in the, in the temple. They see this as the church called the temple in the New Testament. But I think the best way to take this is a literal the literal rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. The man of lawlessness will occupy the holy place of the Jerusalem temple and will accept and demand worship due to God alone. The future rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem will be inhabited by the Antichrist who will demand worship and there is no higher blasphemy. It sets the course for the events that usher in the day of the Lord. Apparently, he will be so deceptive that he won't be identified as God's enemy until the apostasy. There's a blasphemous aspect to him, exalting himself and opposing God and going and sitting in the seat of God. He does it on his own. He elects himself to that. He votes himself in. The gospel declares that Jesus Christ is God, that he has the name above all names. His throne is forever. But the man of sin will say that he is God. The embodiment of wickedness, of arrogant blasphemy against the true God. He makes himself an object of worship. This fits with everything the Bible says about these things happening. The first three and a half years of tribulation in the last three and a half years, the great tribulation under his reign, leading to the day of the Lord. In Daniel 7, he'll speak words against the Most High. will wear out the saints of the Most High. will think to change the times and the law. And Daniel 8, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. He will rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Jesus will destroy him. Daniel 9 speaks of the end of the age, the second advent judgment, the future seven-year period which ends with sin's final judgment, Christ's reign of righteousness, return of Christ, establishment of his rule. Seven years of the 70th week of Daniel. and Daniel 11 says that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That that man of lawlessness will do as he wills and 
who will exalt himself and he will magnify himself above every God. Daniel eleven thirty six and shall shall speak astonishing things against God Almighty. In Matthew twenty four, Jesus speaks of this abomination of desolation. Originally referred to the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria, who invaded Jerusalem in 168 BC and made the altar into a shrine to Zeus and sacrificed pigs upon it. But Jesus was speaking of a yet future abomination of desolation, not, not that one, and not AD 70 when Titus invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Apostle Paul looked forward to a still future fulfillment, as did John. When the Antichrist sets up an image in the temple during the future tribulation, Jesus was looking beyond the events of AD 70 to a time of greater global upheaval that will immediately precede his coming. In Revelation 13, it says, the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. It tells us that all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You are a believer today, and in that day, you will not worship because your name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You will worship the true God. The term man of sin suggesting that the Antichrist is going to command sin. Tell people to sin and tell them they're doing God's will. And I know it sounds similar to things that are happening today. But let me just assure you that this is nothing compared to what will happen then. The Antichrist will oppose Christ and his church and stand in the place of Christ as head of the false church. Gregory the Great in AD 604 said that anyone claiming to be the universal leader over all the church is the forerunner of the Antichrist. And really, however you ant- interpret this text and anticipate these things, you must reject anyone who seeks to take the place in the church that belongs only to Jesus. He will, the son of destruction, will exalt himself. That, that means that he doesn't deserve the exaltation. And yet he takes it. Self-proclaimed, voted himself in. And yet Jesus is already exalted. No one will ever take his throne. He is already above all. Christ alone has supreme authority. Christ alone is the mediator who redeems by his once-for-all sacrifice. Christ alone has the power to save sinners. So take no part in any movement or any church that considers a man Christ's substitute. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way.
Is anyone or anything distracting you from Christ right now? Is anyone or anything distracting you from Christ, pushing you off point from the truth? Repent of that and get back on track with Christ because if not, as times get worse, as sin gets worse, you will have a hard time, even a harder time getting back on point. The worst would be for someone who professes to know Christ but lives in defiance of him to be swept away. The rebellion comes first. The revealing comes next. But what is it keeping it all at bay is really what we need to cling to here. It's the restraining in verses 5 and 6, the restraining. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He's nudging their memory. He's prodding them. You remember, right? I'm going to remind you of it. You remember, don't you? I told you. It's in the imperfect tense. It indicates a repeated action in past time. Apparently, Paul told them over and over again of these things. That's why he could just say, you know. You know. You know God's future plans in detail. I told you. He reminds them of what proves the false teachers wrong, and he told them everything regarding the Antichrist preceding the day of the Lord, and he has not been revealed yet, so they could not be in that day. He says in verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now, so he will be revealed in his time. You know what is restraining him, holding him down, They've been taught, they knew what was restraining the coming of the Antichrist, but we don't. People, you know, this is, this is the biggest guesswork for a lot of people. I counted no less than 16 different options that people have tried to propose as the identity of the restrainer of the man of sin. Some say that the restrainer is both impersonal, what is restraining, and personal, he who now restrains, verse 7. But there are some improbable options. Human government, Gentile world dominion, Seneca, the Jewish state, uh, popular early on, the Roman Empire and its ruler. I mean, think about it. Paul benefited several times by the Roman government intervening. But these ideas are implausible because the restrainer works against Satan, not with him. Other options, the Mosaic law and Elijah and Michael and the binding of Satan and the preaching of the gospel and the apostles. Some people even said Paul's the restrainer. Some said it's the saints in Jerusalem before the destruction of the, the, of the, temp, of, of, of the city. Some say it's the church. Some say it's the providence of God. Some say it's the Holy Spirit. We know this, the power now restraining the Antichrist from being revealed in the fullness of apostasy and evil, must be supernatural, must agree with the will of God. So God's power in operation holds Satan back. So the man of destruction, the, the, the man of lawlessness, won't be able to come until God permits it by removing the restraining power. It is accurate to say 
the restrainer with supernatural power to hold back the enemy is God and the outworking of his providence, God's purpose at the proper time it's going to happen. But saying God is the restrainer is not precise enough to explain the variation in Greek grammar in the sentences here. There's a fluctuation between neuter and masculine. But it recalls how the Holy Spirit is spoken of in Jesus' upper room discourse. And so in light of the supernatural character of the one holding the man of lawlessness back and the use of the masculine article in verse 7, the reason why in verse 6 the Greek word for spirit is neuter, but the, it's best to understand the restrainer as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Identifying the Holy Spirit as the restrainer, which has deep roots in church history, is the best way to take this. That the presence of the Holy Spirit as the indweller of the saints, think about this, it will terminate abruptly at Christ's return, just as it began abruptly at Pentecost after Christ's departure. Once the body of Christ is caught up away to heaven, Spirit's ministry will revert back to what he did for believers during the Old Testament period. At that point, the reins will be removed from lawlessness and the satanically inspired rebellion will begin. And it's interesting that as you, as you look at this phrase, what is holding him back, it's, it was actually, you could see that it was a title for the Holy Spirit on whom they had come to depend as they combated lawlessness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4.8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God has a proper time for the revelation of the lawless one, just as he does for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. And no one knows the time except God and until the gathering of the saints, the Spirit of God will continue his restraining work. Be very thankful, believer. Be very thankful that the Spirit of God, who gave the word and told Paul what to write here, and identifying himself as the restrainer, referring to events that will take place according to the plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, then and now the, the man of sin is held back. The Holy Spirit indwelling the church restrains the evil one now. And the Spirit will be taken out of the way when the church is raptured. And the Spirit will relate to those on earth like in the Old Testament times. So first must come the rebellion and then the revealing and what is keeping it all at bay is the restraining. Paul is reassuring them the day of the Lord's judgment has not come. You look around this world and you see horrendous evil. You see heinous crimes. It's interesting that Paul does not tell them that they will see the two marks, the rebellion and the revealing that jumpstart the day of the Lord. What they were to do in that moment was to take to heart knowing that they had not missed 
the gathering of those in Christ to him at his coming. That their persecutions, that their sufferings, that their tribulations did not mean that the man of lawlessness was already at work in its fullest sense. We can take comfort in that as well. Our future in Christ is secure. The Thessalonians knew and had been told these things. They knew it. We don't know exactly what they were told, but we can discern and understand what they were told, and they and we are in the same boat. We walk by faith, not by sight. In coming weeks, we'll look into the mystery of lawlessness in verse 7, the spirit of lawlessness already prevalent, but still a mystery, not fully revealed as it will be. More to come on that, but for now, I think we need to focus our attention on why was this info given? Why did the Holy Spirit have Paul say these things in that moment? And why are we listening to it now? And I would submit to you that it's not for our curiosity. A lot of people get very curious about end times things so they can have all the answers at their Bible study. It's not for curiosity's sake. It's to give assurance to the church. It's for comfort. It's, it's for their caution. It's for, it's for them to take courage. I realize that some of you say, hey, you know, I don't really want to talk about this stuff. And I would just say, oh, God really wants you into this, but in the best possible way, not for your curiosity and not, not for your confusion. He wasn't trying to confuse the church. He wasn't trying to just scratch the itch of their curiosity. He meant to comfort them and give them courage. We must be comforted by the truth and take courage. And what that leads to is you and I leave living praiseworthy lives in light of coming days. Not that people would praise us, but they would praise God. That we would live with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That we would cling for, for comfort to the sovereignty of Christ and to the sufficiency of his word. That we would do that now. That we would cling for comfort to the sovereignty of Christ and the sufficiency of scripture now. Which means that you basically have to ignore every graduation speech you ever heard. Don't follow your dreams, don't believe in yourself, don't do you, don't listen to your heart. Someone did a graduation speech like that, I can't remember who it was, but if I ever get to do a graduation speech, that's what I'm doing. No, instead you need to follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, listen to the word, be rooted, in the ground, be rooted and grounded in the truth, be like the Psalm 1 person who's rooted be anchored in Christ, take comfort in Christ and in his word. Truth hasn't changed. We're dealing with sovereign immutability here. No one's going to come in and change God's plan. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Be aware. Be alert to false teaching. Be unafraid, though. If, if, you, if you have experienced the new birth, if you are in Christ, if you are regenerate, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, that means you have a built-in defense system against false teaching. Did you know that? As the Holy Spirit in, in, enlightens and illumines your mind and helps you understand the word, you have protection against error. You have victory guaranteed by the indwelling Holy Spirit who now holds back the man of lawlessness and now leads you and guides you and protects you and provides for you. That the Holy Spirit leads you into sound doctrine, which is evidence that, that salvation has occurred. 
and that you have nothing to fear if you're a Christian. You have nothing to fear. Satan's host cannot take you out of Christ's hands. You need to bank your whole life on that. Believe that truth. Make sure, yes, make sure you're saved. But if you care, if you care about being saved, if you're like, I don't know if I'm really a Christian, that proves you are. I mean, like, non-Christians are not going around going, I wonder if I'm a Christian or not. I really want to be. No. If you could care less, you're probably not a Christian. But if you're a Christian, don't deceive yourself and others by failing to do the word. Like, take in the word in, in huge chunks. Like, devour the word in huge chunks. And then chew on small bites as well and smaller pieces. Dissect the smaller pieces. But devour the, the word of God in large chunks. You need far more of it than you think. And you will not remember every detail of what you read or what you study, but it will form your thinking. It will build your convictions for the battle ahead. The aggregate effects of the word of God on your soul cannot be underestimated. Every Christian is safe in his care and must cling courageously to Christ. And we must take caution. We must take caution. We must not just be comforted and then feel comfortable, but that we should be cautious. That in the Spirit's power, we resolve to stay away from evil and idols. That we don't intentionally engage in sin. That we don't align with evil. That we don't grieve the Spirit of God. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The one who practice, makes a practice of sinning says, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I don't care what God says about it. I'm going to do it. Titus 2 says that Jesus saves us, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purchase for himself, to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good deeds, who are, who are waking up in the morning and walking around during the day and going to bed at night saying, Lord Jesus, I want to please you. That we are to abstain from every form of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. That we are to keep ourselves from idols, 1 John 5.21. Because the spirit of the Antichrist is active today. And false teachers are denying Christ. And by the way, if you're mixed up in Antichrist stuff now, you're going to be more intrigued by Antichrist stuff as time goes on. If you're deceived by people telling lies now, you're probably going to be more susceptible to being deceived by people Peddling lies as time goes on. If you're a follower of, of, of lawlessness right now, you're probably going to be very easily deceived as time goes on. And, and dare I say it, but a lot of believers won't know how to appropriately respond as time gets worse because they're not appropriately responding now. We need to pray for and help our family in Christ. This was written to the church to remain strong in Christ. And we need to do it courageously. Comforted. Being very careful. Cautious. But courageously. But we would vigorously, literally vigorously, engage very intentionally in gospel-focused ministry as near as your own household and as far as you can travel. Because if you're exalting yourself above God and others now, you're going to be on, you're putting yourself on track to be more fully deceived later. If you're clinging dependently to Christ right now, you're going to be more protected from strong delusions later. 
See, how you respond to things going on right now is giving an indicator of how you're going to respond when things get worse. So either change course now or keep going in the right direction now. If, if everything in your life is about you, if everything is about your rights and everyone making your life better, you're probably not going to do really well when the dam breaks and persecution gets worse. Think of something you want right now. Just think of something you want in life that's, that's not bad. That's good. You just, there's something you want. Something good to meet a current need. And, and think about how focused you are on that search. For me, it's I need a pool cleaner, a little pool vacuum thing. I'm looking all over for one, okay? You know how that goes, right? And God's not saying don't seek all the, the good things you need right this moment to, to meet the need of, of life. But what God is saying in this passage is you be comforted in the truth, believer, and it will happen what will happen in the future needs to comfort you so that you can live more purposefully for Christ now as you look for pool vacuums. That you wouldn't lose your composure, that you, you wouldn't be quickly agitated, that you wouldn't be quickly shaken, that you, would, that you would trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That God is in control. You know, Jesus said that this gospel is going to get preached the whole world, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. Despite all the tribulations to come, the deception of false teachers, the, the wars, the persecutions, the natural disasters, the defections from Christ, every obstacle to the spread of the gospel, but the message will spread. Nate Saint, who was a missionary that was murdered in 1956, as he was making first contact with his friends, with an unreached tribe in Ecuadorian jungle. And here's what he said. He said, we know there is only one answer when our country demands that we share in the price of freedom. And yet, when the Lord asks us to pay the price for world evangelization, we answer, we cannot go. The cost is too high. Be courageous. The day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed and more rebellion against God happens. And imagine that dam holding back dirty, putrid, garbage, disease-ridden, deathly water being held back by the strongest power. In a certain moment, it will, it will be let go and will wash over humanity and spread its filth in crystal clear deception yet filled with death. And we are not giving these verses today. We are not given this to confuse us or to tickle our, our curiosity, but to, to comfort and give us courage that these things are going to happen. And you won't be in control. In fact, you'll be in less control then than you are now. But you're going to keep getting pressure from people who don't like what Jesus said, and you, just like the Thessalonians did, and you decide now Whose opinion do I care about most? Lord, we thank you that the only thing keeping us from being swept away in the, in the worship of man is the salvation you provide by your sheer sovereign grace because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who have faith in Christ and 
want to live to please you. Thank you for choosing and calling us to be saved, and thank you for preserving us. For any who hear these words who cannot say that they belong to Christ, Lord, may they not keep rejecting the gospel. May you open, your, open their hearts to the gospel truth of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. Lord, cause them to want to turn from their sins and cry out to Christ to save them. Lord, may we be courageous in the face of evil. We know, Lord, that the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. May we, by your grace, resist fear, reject lies, live before your face for your glory. You who are always with us, may we not fear intimidation or be troubled. May we not get pushed off point regarding truth, but be comforted in the truth and take courage. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control of it all that there is not one part over which you are not sovereign and working out your plan. We praise you. We thank you that you are loving us and strengthening us and sanctifying us in the midst of all of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able as we respond to the word in song?
Praise God. Before we go, Jim and Judy Clark, come up here. Sorry, surprise. Um, we don't always do this, but when we were aware, we do. Uh, every time somebody moves, even if we don't send them out as a missionary, we're still sending them out with our blessing and our love, and they're going to go serve the Lord's purposes in another place in the country, Pennsylvania, uh, to be exact. And Jim and Judy have been involved with, our, with Grace for a long time and have been involved with a lot of ministries, most recently Judy with missions team and as a deaconess. Uh, but uh, just say something. And then I'll pray for you. Say, say something. Yes, pray for us, please. <laughs> yeah, that's um, we don't say goodbye. We say so long because um, we, uh, we would like to come back and see everyone. Also, uh, we leave our family, our church family. Um, we uh, really do feel like a family. And uh, we encourage everyone here to dedicate yourselves to this family because you need this family to get through life as you cling to Jesus. So um, we do go to Pennsylvania. We're going to be uh, blessed uh, to be near our oldest son and his wife and their four kids and be near, nearer to uh, our second son and his wife and Lauren and Caleb, who both sort of grew up in this church. Anyway, who will be familiar names for you. So... Um, Thank you for your prayers. Um, we do this to give the Lord the glory. It's not about us. So anyway, yes, thank you. Right. We're going to miss you guys. I miss you. Well, let me, uh, let me pray as we go. Let me, uh, let me read before I pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This is for us and you guys. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. So good to us, Lord, in so many ways. And you're so kind to bring friends into our life. Thank you for the Clarks, for Jim and Judy as they have served and ministered here and just been among us for so long. And we pray that you would bless them as they go, that they would be a blessing in their new church, that you would lead and guide and protect and provide for them as they go into a new area to be a blessing in the neighborhood and in, in the local church and for all their kids that, that are rejoicing. We just thank you and thank you, Lord, that we are kept in your care and we would go now to serve your purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Sovereign in the mountain air.